Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning we need you. We need your spirit to rouse our hearts and illuminate our minds so that we might not be filled with human wisdom derived by human means, but that we might know the wisdom of you, wisdom from your word, wisdom that leads us to worship Christ crucified and exalted. Lord, I ask for your help this morning as we look at your word. You would be with us. Your spirit would teach us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' sake. Amen. A couple weeks ago, it was my son Eli's birthday. And if you've seen Eli or if you've seen our uh, coffee table in our house, you will know that he loves Legos. Uh, And he uh, received a, a few sets. And it is a joy to watch him build his Chinook Lego helicopter with the double rotors and the cargo ramp that comes down in the back or his police mobile command center which opens up with a built-in army locker for equipment and a holding cell for the robbers to be captured. It's fun to watch him open up the bags and pull out the instructions and carefully begin to build his creations, his Legos. It's fun to watch him love to build something. We build a lot of stuff in our lives, don't we? We build relationships, we build resumes, we build careers, we build families. When our lives fall apart, we rebuild them. How do we do that? What does it look like for us to build well things in our lives? Another thing we build is teams. I remember when I was a uh, sophomore in high school, I went to a small high school and we were one of those little guys that slayed the giants in Western Pennsylvania and Midwest uh, prep school lacrosse. So we had this, I I was in a class of 60 people. We played against these behemoth schools from other cities that had 2,000 in their class and all boys schools so they had even more athletes. But my sophomore year, we were the worst team that we had been in the last 10 to 15 years of the school's history. As I look back on it, what I saw was that we didn't do well at building a team. We had leaders who were more interested in the party than the play. We had too many guys who were in it for their own glory. And if you've ever seen lacrosse, you know it's a team game. And it doesn't go well when you try to do it all on your own. We had far too many who were individualistically seeking for glory and far too many who were going through the motions. We didn't build that team very carefully and it showed. You may be wondering why I'm talking about building. Well, our passage today is talking about the church as God's building, not as a structure with bricks and mortar. Uh, God almost never describes the church as a building in that sense. 
Um, But what it is, is the building is the community of God's people, the relationships, the nature of what it means when God's people gather together as a church. And interestingly, Paul doesn't just use building as a noun, but he uses it as a verb. It's not just something we are in, but it is something that we are actively participating in. And so he raises the question for us, what does it look like for us to build a church well? I can remember probably less long ago than I wish, or maybe you would be surprised how recently some of these attitudes were true in my life, that I was careless about how I built the church. I worked in ministry, I uh, was in a parachurch organization that I loved, and uh, this doesn't reflect on them or their training, but it reflected on my own heart. I went through the motions of going to church. I would get there when I could. I wasn't invested in it, and I certainly wasn't thinking about building it. I would come to church for what I could get out of it. Relationships, teaching, a good song that rouses my heart. I was ultimately coming to church for what it could do for me not building into it. Sometimes I would show up for small group as a leader and not be really prepared or careful. I would chunk it into my schedule and then move on to other things. And so my prayerfulness for my small group was lacking. In many ways, I lacked care for the church that God had put me in. I wonder if I'm not alone in this. And this is what leads us to our passage this morning. You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's on page 953. Is that right? 953 in your pew Bible. And as you're looking there, let me just catch us up on where we've been in the book of Corinthians so far. Paul has just addressed the church as immature needing to grow because it had fallen into a spirit of the culture around it, comparing themselves and competing with one another in spiritual things in a foolish attempt to get ahead spiritually. These dynamics cause quarreling and jealousy and divisions in the church, and Paul rebukes them for it, reminding them that the church is God's work. And that the leaders that they have, that they, have a, that they had attached themselves to in this competitive spirit were workers under God, servants of God and servants of the church through whom God worked. And that the church themselves were God's field. They were the thing that God had raised up from a fallow ground by his gracious work in their lives. And that any spiritual fruit that they saw in their lives was not because of the human greatness of the leaders nor of the church members, but it was a result of the power of God. This leads us to our passage, chapter 3, verse 9, verse, I'm going to go back and read verse 9 as well as verse 10 through 17, which is what we'll be looking at today. 
For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So we look at this passage this morning, Paul's exhortation for us is in some ways very simple. Be careful how you build my church. Be full of care for the church that I have built, that you are a part of. Don't use it, but build it. And he gives two reasons for that. One is that there will be an eternal testing of the value of your work in this life. Secondly, because God loves the church that he dwells in. And he calls you to do the same. So let's look at those two things. First of all, we are to have care in how we build the church because how we build the church will have eternal consequences and eternal testing. He starts out in verse nine by saying, you are God's church, you are God's building, right? All of you in Corinth. Um, he uses this metaphor as the, it, to discuss, to talk about um, the, the type of ministry that's going on in the church. From there, he says, you are God's building. And then I, Paul, was a skilled master builder. The word there is wise. I was a wise builder. I was building with the wisdom that God had given me, which resonates all the way back for what we've read in the first couple of chapters about God's wisdom versus human wisdom. Paul was a wise builder and he laid a foundation upon which other people were building. Now that may seem strange to you. Uh, Some of you may be in construction, you probably know more about it than I do. But back then it took a while to build buildings, particularly if you laid a foundation for them. So someone would come in and lay a foundation, but they might not be able to actually follow through with building the building. So someone else would come behind them and then slowly build upon what has already been built. The foundation gives shape to the building. You can't build outside of the foundation or it will fall down. Um, The the foundation uh, provides strength. It must bear the weight of the building that is built on top of it. And the foundation flows from. It must be in line with and appropriate to the foundation that has been laid. So Paul says build well on the foundation. 
Be careful how you build upon the foundation. And he says, and there is only one foundation. It's the foundation that's already been laid in Jesus Christ. And by that, he means two different things, I think. One is that God himself has laid the foundation for the church in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is, in fact, the definition of what the church is. It is not a social institution. It is not a voluntary organization, although it is those things. But fundamentally, it is the group of people who are gathered by Jesus Christ Those who, by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, he has purchased, he has rescued out of the ravages of sin and the brokenness of the world to be his people. Those who, by faith, identify with and trust in this Jesus Christ are then brought into the church. So Paul's saying God has laid the foundation already. Anything that is built on any other foundation isn't actually the church, whatever else it might be. But Paul's also saying, I laid the foundation for you in Corinth this way. I came and I preached to you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came and I taught you the implications of this. If you remember in Acts 19, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth building into the church, teaching them. Paul laid the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified in the church. So he says, build well on it. Be careful about how you build on it. And so he goes on, look with me in verses 12 through 15, and he says, as you are building it, think about what it is that you are doing. What are the materials you are using and what is the manner that you are doing it with? He uses these images of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. There's been lots of fun speculation about what those things might be pointing to, uh, but I'll give you two things that I think are really clear from the text and from the context. First of all, it's simply saying there are some materials that when they're burned, they won't burn up. They won't disappear. And there are some that will. If you burn straw, all you have is ashes. If you burn gold, there will still be gold left at the end. So there's a sense of eternalness about the materials, the building materials. He's saying, make sure you're doing it like that. Make sure you're using things that are gonna last. I had the uh, opportunity to live in uh, China for a few years and um, one of the fascinating differences between there and here is that uh, often when you move into an apartment, it's an empty shell and uh, the owner who's moving in will renovate it. And uh, as they renovate it, they put stuff in. Uh, But there's almost a cultural expectation that this turnover will happen somewhat regularly. And therefore, the building materials are meant to last only for a little while. This isn't true everywhere. And I think it's probably changed even since I lived there a little while ago. Uh, But I think that, um, but it was fascinating to see these materials were built not to last Um, You guys might think about it as buying Ikea furniture, right? Um, It's it's the stuff that's going to last five to ten years at most. 
Paul says, don't build with those things. Don't build with those. Build with these things. And there's also the second meaning or significance of the things that he pulls out, I think, have to do with the fact that gold and silver and precious stones are the materials that are, are stated in multiple places in the Old Testament as the very things with which God built his temple with, that God adorned his temple with. And we'll pick up that theme in a little while and explore it more. But Paul is saying, build things that have a beauty and an eternality about them. Then he goes on and he says, because they'll be tested, there really is a judgment that will come. You might think, ah, what does it matter how I do this? Paul says, oh, it does matter. Because one day there will be a day The day of judgment will come. There will be accountability for what you do. It will be tested as by fire. And this fire is not a refining fire that burns off the dross and and that allows the goodness to come through. Although in other places in scripture there is God is a refining fire is certainly an image. But here is a revealing fire. You have two houses, light them on fire. What happens? The one's built of wood, hay, and stubble. There's nothing left at the end. Those that are built of the more precious and eternal metals, they will last forever. They will stand first. And just as a side note, um, this passage has been used by uh, some Catholic theologians to uh, defend the understanding of purgatory. That what happens between death and final judgment, there can be this refining process And I hope that you will see that in fact it doesn't seem to be to bear the weight of the argument of the text. Um, That this text is about there will be one judgment at the end and what you have built on will be tested. It's not a refining, it's not an improving, there's no sense of process. It's simply an evaluation. It's like if you live in San Francisco and the earthquake comes There's no process of saying, well, how'd we do and can we do it better next time? Your house either stood or it fell down. It's like having a house, a beach house in Florida when the hurricane hits. Either your roof was attached to the frame by code or it wasn't. And if it wasn't, it probably blew off and your house is destroyed. This is the picture that Paul is giving us here. And he's saying, love the church And he says, and there'll be a reward for it. What is the reward? Oh, there's another fun thing commentators go all over about. What is the reward? But you know, Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says this. What is our reward? What is our crown and joy as we stand before the Lord? Is it not you? I think for Paul, the reward for those who labor as builders in building the church is to see those that you've built into and built with standing with you before the throne of God and the community of worship that happens on that day of judgment where those who have been built with eternal things will stand, will be a glorious thing. And that's Paul's great reward for this. Now, having said that, might raise the question, well, who's being judged here? 
Is this just talking about Christian leaders? Is it just talking about the Paul and Apollos? Well, clearly it is talking to Christian leaders um, because that's a key part of what Paul is getting at in this whole section is he's instructing the church partly on how to evaluate their leaders and how to esteem them properly. But when you look through the language of this, do you notice how often Paul says each one? Let each one take care how he builds. No one can build a foundation. Anyone who builds a foundation, over and, each one's work, over and over and over again, he's saying this isn't just for leaders, although it certainly is for them. This is for everyone in the church. How are you building? How are you building? All right, so practically, what does this mean? Interestingly, Paul doesn't actually give us a lot of instruction on how to build in this passage, right? It's more of an exhortation to just be careful how you do it. But in the context, what do we see? We see that Paul has been preaching about the eternal things that are aligned with Christ crucified. Are you pointing people to boast in God? Or do you want to look impressive in their eyes? Are you developing in others humility and dependence upon God and his spirit to lead and to teach? Or are you making people who are dependent on you? Are you talking about Jesus and him crucified over and over and over again? Like Paul who said, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we do these things, when we talk about these things with one another, we are building into the church with eternal materials that will last. There are temporal things, there are other options. Paul's been going at them for quite a while. Human wisdom that's characterized by self-promotion, a competitive spirit to say, I can get ahead of you by showing you how great I am. Dependence on skill of, of, of human gifting, of oratory and rhetoric. At the core of it, it's all a, look at me. See how great I am. See, I think at the core of it, Paul is saying there are two ways that we can build. We can either use the church for our own glory that is, we come only for what it, at the end of the day, only for what it gives us. And so we only come when it's convenient, when it meets our needs, when it fulfills our standards. It means that we find places of ministry that make us look good and boost our ego. It also can mean that there are times when if we are feeling extremely broken and helpless and weak, we can come to the church and just be extremely demanding. And in both ways, we find ourselves making it ultimately about me. And we use the church for our good. what Paul is saying is 
Don't use the church. Love it. Don't use the church, but build it. Follow the pattern of Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Sacrificially love those around you. Serve them. Even when you don't feel gifted. Give when it hurts to give. Ask the Lord, is my heart filled with a desire for God's glory, not in my own life, but in the lives of those around me? And not in a pretentious, haughty, I'm going to take you to glorious places, but in a broken, oh, that we would together see the greatness of the God that we serve who has rescued us. When we love the church like that, when we build the church like that, we become owners and investors, not consumers. And Paul says, and there are eternal consequences for this. Interestingly, not salvific ones, right? When you look at verse 15, if we build poorly, we may still be saved. We may get through by the skin of our teeth. We may get out with the, with the shirt on our back, but nothing else. And Paul says that's an impoverished place to be. It is a tragic place to be because it has lessened God's glory and has robbed God's people of their enjoyment of God, both in this life and their glory to God in the life to come. I don't know if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity and you're hearing this whole sermon about the church. You're thinking, okay, I'm not even part of this. And like, you all are crazy. So what are you doing here? Um, I hope you're getting a glimpse of what it is that God wants to do and what it is that God has designed the church to be. We are not always that. But by the grace of God and by the instruction of his word, we are being taught to increasingly be what God has called us to be. Laid on the foundation of the savior who came and died for us. I hope you'll see that this morning. So Paul tells us to come and build carefully because there are these, there will be this eternal testing. There will be this final Proving this revealing of what we've actually done. And he says, build carefully. Secondly, he says, build carefully because in verse 16 and 17, because God cares. Because this is God's church. And he has called his church to be his temple, his dwelling place, the place where his spirit resides in this world. When you read verses 16 and 17, look with me in it. Paul uses these rhetorical questions to be stinging. Don't you know that if you put your hand in the fire, you'll get burned? Don't you know that if you step out in front of a truck, you're going to get hit? Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Why aren't you acting like it? Why are you quarreling and competing and fighting and dividing? 
and promoting yourself. Because you are God's temple. And for those pagans in Corinth, they would have understood that to be the place where the deity actually dwells on the hills, in the temples, in the actual structure. But for those from a Jewish background, there's even a deeper resonance in this passage. Omolotuke read earlier from Exodus 25, the beginning of this idea, God will come and dwell with his people. He will actually manifest his presence. The omnipresent God will manifest his presence in a particular way among his people. And so they built the tabernacle having received the law on Mount Sinai. They built the tabernacle and it traveled with them. And then the center of it was the Holy of Holies where God's glory would show itself. Moses would go in and talk to God as as he talks to a man face to face in this place. When hundreds and hundreds of years later Solomon builds his temple in Jerusalem and the kingdom is consolidated and at the height of its glory 2 Chronicles 7 tells us that the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple and shone in that holy of holies behind the curtain, behind the wall where the Ark of the Covenant reminded the people of the need for a sacrifice for sin and of the glorious grace of God that he would provide a lamb. Tragically, in the Old Testament story, in Ezekiel 10, The prophet in an apocalyptic vision talks about the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. Maybe you've seen uh, some of the recent movies come out in the last 10 years. I've watched a little bit too much TNT late at night. Um, Independence Day or uh, what was the one with Channing Tatum? He was the uh, Secret Service. Anyway, all of these are about how whatever happens, the White House gets blown up right? That's the bottom line of these movies. The White House gets blown up, but people are saved at the end. Um, But what I want you to see, the reason why that's such an iconic picture for us is because to blow up the White House is to take the very gut out of what America is. And it's the closest thing that we would have to understand how devastating a faithful Jew would have felt when the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. That has defined them. Who are we? We are God's people and he dwells in our midst. And now that God has said no more and he has withdrawn his glory in judgment upon their unfaithfulness. And even in Ezekiel 6 or Ezra 6 when they rebuild the temple after return from the exile There's no report that the glory descends again. One of my kids' children's Bibles, it's fascinating. They talk about the rebuilding of the temple and they talk about the old men weeping, weeping because the temple did not have the glory of what it once had. And so in some ways, the whole Old Testament leaves us hanging with this question. What will God do? Where will God dwell? What will God's people be like? And Jesus comes, and Jesus tabernacles among us. 
And after his death and his resurrection, the church is filled with his spirit. And Paul says, you are God's temple now. Ephesians 2, 20, pictures. You are God's temple built together from the diversity of Jew and Gentile brought together into one household. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 about how you are God's building and Jesus Christ is not only the cornerstone that is the stone that's laid from which everything else finds its alignment but Jesus is also the capstone. He's the one at the top of the arch that holds it together. And so this house is seen to be from beginning to end to be built by Jesus and held together by Jesus. You as living stones This is what God calls his people to be. And when we gather together, this is where we meet with God. It is striking in the English, we don't see it. Verses 16 and 17, you plural are God's temple. In chapter six, it will be you individually are God's temple and the spirit dwells within you. But here it's you plural are God's temple. So not only does God indwell each individual believer, but God dwells with us together in a community. And Paul says, do not destroy this. Do not destroy what God has built and what God loves. There is a warning here. If you continue in your factionalism, if you continue to promote a self-centered Using the church perspective, you will erode its true foundation and you will replace it with something else. And the church, not the church universal, but the local church will be destroyed by your building it poorly. And those who are responsible will be destroyed with it. Though verse 15 seems to have a, you can skate through though by fire. There is a stronger warning here that if you stubbornly and persistently build the church for your own glory, there will be grave consequences for you. It is not the fruit of a heart that has been rescued by Jesus. God loves his church where he is ordained that the world would see who he is because that's where he dwells by his spirit. I wonder this morning as you come in here, what do you think about the church? Maybe you're disillusioned by its imperfections. You think, well, what do you expect? It's only human. Maybe you're demanding, this church stinks. There's so many ways it could be better. Maybe you're dismissive. Yeah, the church is nice. It's not that important. It's, it's an add-on. It's an app in my phone. Maybe you're disappointed. The church hasn't been what I hoped it would be. And I'm brokenhearted. Maybe you're devastated. Maybe you've been abused by your church experiences. Friends, Paul has a different exhortation for us. 
He says, devote yourself to the church. Devote yourself in love. Recognize that the church is not perfect. It is not all those. It is not going to be everything that you might want it to be. But even in those imperfections, God will use it to refine you. And if you see that the foundation of it is Jesus Christ and him crucified, he who came to rescue sinful, broken people like us, he who came to save us from our pride and self-promotion and egotism and our desire to use everything around us for our good rather than for God's glory, then, friends, you will see the glory of what God means when he says you are God's temple where God's spirit dwells. If you are professed faith in Christ this morning, you are a part of the church. The question is not whether you will build into it. The question is whether you will build it well with care or whether you will be careless. What does it look like? What does it look like at the end of the day? Well, here are a couple of things I just thought of that might be helpful. Some practical things. For leaders, if you're a small group leader or a Sunday school leader or a worship leader, take your pick. Prepare. Pray ahead of time. Plan. Think about what it is that God would have you bring to the group. Make sure it's not just the next thing you run to on your schedule from one thing to another, but see that you have the opportunity to be a part of building God's temple in the world and treat it with the kind of respect and dignity that God wants you to, have, to give it. Make room for it to be a valuable investment. But how about you, small group attender? How can you go to small group with an attitude of, I want to build here? Do you pray for the other people in your small group? Have you read the passage ahead of time and thought about what you may see in it that you could share with others? Are you thinking about how you can serve one another outside of the meeting time? Or is it just this slot that you get there 10 minutes late and sneak out a little bit early because you've got so much else to do. Not everyone's in small group, but hopefully, and obviously I'm preaching to the crowd here. um, How about when you come to service? How do you prepare for it? Do you think about going to sleep well enough so that you can be awake when you're here? Do you think about reading the passage, following the sermon card, so that you know what we're going to be studying and talking about? But even more than that, have you prayed before you walked in here this morning, God, how can I bless the saints? How can I point them to Jesus Christ and him crucified? How can I love the people who are sitting around me in my pew? How can I treasure the gift of gathering together? This may sound just way too much, but have you ever thought about just making Sunday about church? Come to Sunday school. Stay for service. 
Stay for fellowship hour. Go out for lunch with people afterwards. Enjoy the opportunity that's built into your schedule to be with God's people and to build into his church. Don't come here just to use it, just to get your gas tank filled up so you can run off. But come here and be with God's people. Because God loves his church. Because he calls us to build it carefully for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that it is by your grace that you have called your church. And uh, it is in Jesus Christ that you have bought us and brought us into communion with you and with one another. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart, your understanding, Lord, of what it is you have called us to, to be a part of your church. Lord, that we would build well, not use, but love for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.